morning, everyone. It's good to be in the Lord's house this morning. Every day is a new blessing from God, a new opportunity to give Him praise and to learn from Him. And I pray that as we've come together this morning, we've come ready to learn something new about God. As we have been working our way, looking at the life and ministry of the prophet Elisha, we come to 2 Kings chapter 8. 2 Kings chapter 8. And this morning we'll look at the first six verses here in 2 Kings chapter 8 in a sermon that I've titled, Understanding the Loving Kindness of the Lord. Understanding the Loving Kindness of the Lord. Psalm 107 describes many of the wonderful works of God. If you ever get a chance, just go and read through Psalm 107. It talks about so many wonderful things about God. It talks about his redemptive power. It talks about his deliverance from transgressions and his deliverance from the storms that we face through life, as well as just his overall power over nature and creation. And throughout the psalm, There's a a phrase that is repeated, a verse that is repeated, and it says, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. That's repeated about four times throughout this psalm, Psalm 107. Over the course of 43 verses that make up Psalm 107, all of God's works are being highlighted. And then the psalm ends with these words in verse number 43. It says, Whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. There are many believers who do not understand the loving kindness of the Lord. We have a good idea, maybe, of of how and, and just how good God is, some of the things that he's capable of, but I don't think we fully understand the loving kindness of the Lord. An entire psalm is devoted to expressing God's power and deliverance to ultimately demonstrate God's loving kindness. And yet, That is the lesson most often lost on those who see many of God's works. We see how powerful he is. We see how capable he is. But the psalm ends there by saying, if you see all these things, maybe, and observe them, maybe you'll start to understand the loving kindness of God. You see, God shows himself all-powerful. He brings deliverance from our problems. He brings deliverance out of the storms of life. He manifests himself so clearly in our lives if our eyes are just open to see it. Not for just the sake of showing us the things that he's capable of doing, but to demonstrate ultimately his loving kindness for us. Everything we've seen of God as we've tracked the ministry of the prophet Elisha has been focusing on revealing to men that he, God, desires a relationship with us. We've looked at least at 15 miracles up to this point, and each of them in and of themselves were truly incredible. But God was doing much more than just some incredible work. He was demonstrating to the recipients of the miracles, to the beneficiaries of the miracles, just how personal of a God he is. He's not a God who is far off, who is the man upstairs, who is disconnected with the things that we're going through here on earth, unaware of what we're facing in life. He is intimately aware of every little detail of our lives, every concern, every care that we have, every ounce of pain, every ounce of sorrow, every tear that we shed, every thought of happiness and joy that we have. God is fully aware of all of it because God loves us more than what you and I could ever imagine. God has extended mercy and grace to us in ways words will never be able to express. God blesses us every day, even if we never acknowledge it. And each and every one of us are living under the blanket of the very freedom which God provides. And rarely do we offer him any show of thanks. Rarely do we show him any sort of gratitude. God is good to us, not because any of us deserve it, but because he loves us that much. And those words from Psalm 107 and verse number 43 are offered as a call for everyone to see God's hand in their lives because it's there whether you see it or acknowledge it and understand why it is there in the first place. So again, Psalm 107 verse 43 says, Whoso is wise and will observe these things, all the things that God is doing around you and in your life, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. As we take a look at this 16th miracle in the ministry of the prophet Elisha, 
I offer those words again to you. I hope they're going to be etched in your mind as you leave here this morning. Psalm 107, verse 43, whoso is wise, whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. This story may have taken place many years ago involving people that you and I never met, but the truth that we learn about God here in, in 2 Kings chapter 8 is still remaining the same. As we go through this passage, keep those words from Psalm 107 verse 43 in the back of your mind. Maybe keep them front and center rather as we see some of the wonderful work that God was doing through the days and the ministry of the prophet Elisha. For anyone who is discouraged, anyone that is afraid, anyone who is confused, is overwhelmed, is feeling stressed or anxious or worried or in despair, consider this call for you. Whoso is wise and will observe these things, may he understand the loving kindness of the Lord. For everyone else, Maybe everything seems to, being, seems to be going okay in your life at this time. Consider this your call as well to remain focused on God and to keep your eyes set on Him. Because the enemy is going to do everything he can to try and get your eyes off of God. He's maybe planning something around the corner that is set to derail you or discourage you. Just because you've noticed God's hand at work in your life doesn't mean that your eyes and your mind are going to remain focused on him from this time forth. Isaiah 26 verse 3 reminds us, it says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace. Who? Whose mind is stayed on thee, on God, because he trusteth in thee. This verse teaches that we need to be choosing to remain stayed and focused on Christ. We must continue to trust him every single day. Sometimes we lose sight of the fact that the good hand of God is upon us and we need those reminders in our hearts as well as in our minds that help us refocus on the things that are truly important. God doesn't promise that our lives are going to be easy, that we're never going to deal with problems, that we're never going to deal with heartache, that we're never going to be faced with sorrow, that we're going to have good health, that all the problems that we're going to face are going to vanish away. But he does promise that he will be with us at all times. If we're not seeking God, we're never going to see him. We're never going to see his hand, let alone understand his loving kindness. So whoso is wise and will observe these things. May he understand the loving kindness of the Lord. As we turn our attention to 2 Kings chapter 8, I want you to notice first the reality of the miracle, the reality of the miracle as we see this new miracle here in 2 Kings chapter 8. Our passage here in 2 Kings chapter 8 takes place, now you may be thinking, well, this is kind of obvious, immediately after the events of chapter 7. Uh, and it reintroduces to us someone that we met several chapters earlier back in chapter 4. Uh, some fail to see, as they're reading through the narrative here in chapter 8, that there's actually a miracle that takes place in this passage and kind of end up chalking this up to the normal course of nature. And as we take a closer look at what the Bible says here in 2 Kings chapter 8, I think you'll find that it is clear that what we're seeing is the gracious operation and miracle working power of God rather than some unexplained phenomenon. Many people tend to think that God doesn't operate in the same manner today as he did back in those biblical times. And as a result, they try to redefine what's happening on the pages of Scripture based on some of the things that they see or don't see happening today. It's true that we may not see the same miracles that God was working through men like Elijah or even the prophet Elisha, but don't be foolish enough to think that God is still not working miracles today. God is working miracles every single day. The problem is that we've grown so accustomed to seeing them that we don't view them, we don't view them as miracles. God brings healing. God provides, uh, provides for our financial situations. God keeps us protected. God gives wisdom. God extends mercy and does a whole host of other miraculous things in our everyday lives that we don't even notice. They may not be as flashy as him sending down fire from heaven, but don't mistake God's miracles for the natural course of life. When your eye is continually looking to God and seeing just how much the hand of God is working and orchestrating things in your life, you'll indeed begin to understand his loving kindness. 
God will become real to you and not just someone that you end up visiting a couple times a week. God is ready to hear our cries. He's ready to work miracles in your lives just as much as he did in the life and ministry of the prophet Elijah before Elisha and then Elisha here as we're looking at here. We just, I think, lack the faith in God's power and ability to be able to see some of the miraculous things that he's doing every, every single day. But call it what you want. God is working miracles today. And I'm thankful for his gracious and merciful hand that has been present every day of my life. So there's a reality of miracles. Uh, but notice, second, the connection of this specific miracle. Now, I mentioned that this miracle takes place immediately following the events of chapter 7. And, and we'll see in just a moment, uh, verse number 1 of chapter 8 lets us know that not much time has passed. Now, we often think that some of the chapter divisions signal a significant break in time. And sometimes that's true, and sometimes it's literally picking right up where the last chapter ended. In chapter 7, if you can remember, we saw God send the Syrian army. The Syrians had come and besieged Samaria. They completely surrounded it, cutting off all the resources, all natural, uh, all food, and, and anything coming in was all cut off. So basically, the people of Samaria were starving to death. And they had resorted to some horrible means to, for self-preservation. And what God did is he sent a noise of chariots and horses and an army to the Syrians that had been camped out around Samaria to the point where they fled for their lives, leaving everything behind them. All the camp was still full of all their food and all their provisions, and they ran home to, to Syria. And we know that Four leprous men came out, found that the camp was completely deserted. They were able to take all the spoils. The word eventually made it back to the people in Samaria. They came and enjoyed the spoils. And lo and behold, what the prophet Isaiah had foretold, that within 24 hours, God would provide, that real food would be eaten in Samaria, God provided. And that is essentially where we left off as we finished off chapter 7 last week. But as we pointed out, in everything that happened throughout chapter 7, no one... No one other than the prophet Elisha gave any sort of credit, any sort of recognition and acknowledgement to God who had been the one orchestrating all the things that had been happening there to send the Syrians running for their lives to get food to the starving Samaritans. Everyone enjoyed the spoils, but no one stopped to thank God for the abundant supply of food that was miraculously provided and, it, and how it didn't even cost them a dime to get it. No one considered how good God had been to them, how the prophet's word had come true, how gracious it was for God to provide for them in the time of desperation, how merciful God had been to not allow them to die when they had it coming. Nothing is mentioned of the sort. They all went about their business stuffing their faces with real food and not anything that's disgusting and wasn't ever intended to be food, which is what they would have resorted to, without so much as a thank you to God, not even a single word of praise to God from the king who had heard 24 hours earlier from the prophet Elisha that God would provide within 24 hours. Nothing. Nothing at all. God had no place in the minds of the people of Samaria, for they had turned their backs on him and they had given themselves completely over to idolatry. And consequently, this is what we find ourselves doing when we stop acknowledging God's goodness and favor in our lives. We start giving credit to everyone and everything else other than God and end up forgetting about God when he blesses us. And this is how we lose sight of the fact that God is working miracles every single day. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 2, it describes this perfectly. It says, For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. The Apostle Paul almost gives a laundry list of negative things we see when people turn their backs on God. And we like to think that we're not among those that are listed in those categories. But the truth is that we're guilty of so much more than we, what we care to admit. And much of the time, these behaviors stem from our attitude and our ultimate view towards God. Where our devotion to, uh, to, to God uh, ends up fading. And much of the time, uh, these things just... just 
fall off the fall by the wayside our devotion to god fades uh, and where it does fade there's not going to be any gratitude for the things that god is doing where there is little thankfulness to god it is a sure sign of the absence of holiness this is the criteria that we must be testing our hearts with. Are we truly appreciative of God's divine favor in our lives or do we accept all the things that God has given as a matter of the natural course of life? This is what it has just come to be. You may not think that this is a big deal, but believe me, this small matter of giving credit and showing acknowledgement to God, it can snowball into something massive and a big problem can arise from this. Those sins that the Apostle Paul mentioned in 2 Timothy 3 verse 2 are pretty serious. And again, he says selfishness, covetousness, boasting in ourselves, pride, blaspheming, disobedience towards parents, unthankful, unholy. These aren't exactly the things that believers should be known for. And if you are, it's time for some serious reforms. Because you didn't get this way overnight. This came about through an extended period of time where you stopped looking to God and began looking at yourself. You may even think that it's not bad because, you know, you're still attending church. Wow, that was loud. Sorry about that. Did you get the point? You may think it's not bad because even if you're guilty of one of these things, you're still attending church. Maybe you still open up your Bible and you're following along. Maybe you're still singing. You're doing all the right motions. But where is your heart? Everyone around you may be convinced that you're walking with the Lord. But what does it matter if you're able to deceive everyone that's around you and still be lying to God? Let me give you a little bit of a newsflash. At the end of your life, you're not going to be standing before a panel of your peers or fellow church members to give an account of what you've done. You're going to stand before the judge, Jesus Christ, who knows the thoughts and intents of our heart, regardless of what we're doing on the outside. So you can keep on lying to yourself and you can keep on lying to those that are around you if you wish, but rest assured that the Holy Spirit is going to make your life miserable every step of the way. Because as a believer, when you're guilty of the sins that the Apostle Paul mentions there in, in, in 2 Timothy 3 verse 2, you're living contrary to who you are and should be in Christ Jesus. And the Holy Spirit will make sure that you are uncomfortable until you start cleaning things up and getting right with God. Because that's the big problem. It mentions a whole host of things that may even deal with some of the interpersonal relationships that we have. But the root of the problem is that you are not at right place with God. As we see here in 2 Kings chapter 8, God will not permit such actions and a behavior forever. The people of Samaria were steeped in idolatry, were living in open defiance against God, were unthankful for the bountiful blessings that he had just given to them. And as a result, there's going to be consequences. God would note their response and would bring about a judgment unto his rebellious people accordingly. God will not be slighted with impunity. He is a merciful God. He's a gracious God. But there is a limit to what he will allow before he intervenes and brings in punishments and judgments. The point is that whether God acts in mercy or whether God acts in judgment, he expects us to acknowledge his hand, either by us bowing before him in penitence beneath his rod of judgment or bowing before him in praise as we worship his goodness. Now think about what happened with Pharaoh when Moses demanded that he should let the Hebrew people go who were captives there in Egypt. Pharaoh proudly responded in Exodus chapter 5 and verse number 2. He said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Well, that's one way to go about it. But the problem was that before God's plagues were finished, Pharaoh's own magicians Acknowledged in Exodus chapter 8, verse 19, they said, this is the finger of God. To which Pharaoh would eventually confess in Exodus chapter 10, verse 16, I have sinned against the Lord your God. Over and over again, 
we're told throughout the Bible to give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. How often are we breaking that commandment? To give thanks to God, who is good. It may seem like a, a very simple thing, but unthankfulness is listed there in 2 Timothy 3 2. Being unthankful. In Romans chapter 1, the Bible speaks of God giving up the heathen to their own wicked devices and ultimately condemning them for eternity as he gives them what they want, which is not him. And one of the reasons he gave them up, the Bible says, was because they were unthankful. Because they were unthankful. Listen to what we read in Romans 1, 21, and verse number 24. It says, Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Where God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. One of the reasons the Bible spells out was that they were unthankful. He gives them over to what they want, which is ultimately to be eternally separated from God. He gave them the opportunity to be saved. They knew about him, wanted nothing to do with him. And so he says, okay, have what you want. And one of the reasons, he says, was that they were unthankful. Not a big deal, right? To be unthankful? Well, I beg to differ. God thinks this is extremely important, especially pertaining to him. The people of Samaria here in 2 Kings chapter 8 had ample opportunity to be thankful, had ample opportunity to express gratitude towards God. But nothing of the sort was shown. God would not forget. Notice third, the nature of the miracle. God is not locked into using one method to deal with unthankful and ungrateful people. However, Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse number 21 does describe some things that we might come to expect. It says in Ezekiel 14, 21, it says, For thus saith the Lord God, how much more when I send my four sore judgments upon Israel, the sword and the famine and the noisome beast and the pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. Now in our passage this morning, God would use the second of those judgments, famine. And notice what we read here in verse number 1 of 2 Kings chapter 8. So again, immediately following this incredible miracle of chapter 7 where the people of Samaria are miraculously fed, eating all the provisions and all the food of the Syrians that were left behind in their camp as God sent them running home for their lives. God had given them this incredible bounty. And notice how chapter 8 begins. Then, giving us the idea that it's not that long afterwards. Then spake Elisha unto the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise, and go thou and thine household, and sojourn wheresoever thou canst sojourn, for the Lord hath called for a famine, and it shall also come upon the land seven years. The Lord has called for a famine. Here we see the miracle and regard it as such for several reasons. First, we see this miracle pronounced as a prophecy because it was yet to come and because it was a supernatural revelation which Elisha had received from God. He says, for the Lord hath called for a famine. Now again, I, I specify this because a lot of people today, a lot of scholars will dismiss that this is a miracle at all, saying this is just a natural course of things that happen. Clearly, the Lord had called for this. A second, because Elisha's announcement here is said to be, it says there um, in verse number two, it says, and the woman arose and did after the saying of the man of God. After the saying of the man of God. We've seen this phrase repeated throughout the record of Elisha and it typically indicates Elisha acting in his official position as the prophet of God. And then third, because in both verses one and verse five, this incident was linked with a previous miracle Specifically, the restoring of the woman's dead son to life. Now, we're going to get to the woman in just a moment, but this is a Shunammite woman that we were introduced to back in chapter 4, who was 
wanting to feed Elisha, she noticed him passing by his home almost on a daily basis, fed him, and then had a prophet's chamber built and added on to her home and took care of him. Her son ended up dying. He restored her son back to life. And now this woman comes back and we see her once again here in chapter eight. And so again, verse one and verse five tell us that this is happening with the same woman again. Again, all, this thing, all these things showing that this is an indeed a miracle tied into another miracle that has already been done. It seems pretty clear as we look at the context here that this famine was a miracle. But the miracle was more than just a famine. God was also graciously providing for this woman by excluding her from the horrors of this famine. A famine is typically the result of a prolonged drought and it leads to crops, it leads to vegetation dying and just drying up. We saw this happen in the life and ministry of the prophet Elijah, who in 1 Kings chapter 17 comes and stands before King Ahab and declares that there is going to be no rain as a result of their idolatry. And we are told that for three and a half years, God did not send rain upon the earth. And so the land suffered immensely. But in this instance, God has declared that the famine would last seven years, which means even more devastation even more death. Farmers would not be harvesting crops because the ground would dry up and no longer yield fruit. Death would be widespread as people would struggle to find food anywhere. And remember, this is happening right on the heels of Samaria coming out of a time when they would have been completely besieged by the Syrians and basically starving to death. They were basically dealing with a famine. Not that long ago. God miraculously provided for them. And because they were ungrateful and unthankful, God says, you know what? We're going back to the famine. Because you obviously didn't get the message clear enough who you need to be worshiping. And so he's going back to treating them the way they deserve to be treating. And he brings the famine once again. They had resorted to horrible things in those days when they were besieged cannibalism eating refuse to survive and no sooner does god miraculously provide real food for them the celebrations and the feasts were short-lived as god would now send a seven-year famine graciously in the midst of what would be widespread death and devastation though god miraculously sustains this shunammite woman there were any number of ways that he could have done this. He could have allowed the small amount of food that she had to last her the entire duration of the famine, just as God had done with the woman at Zarephath in, Acts, or in, in 1 Kings chapter 17 with the prophet Elijah. He could have allowed her crops to be supplied with water while everyone else's crops continued to suffer. But instead, God would work in a different way with this woman, instructing her to do something else and sustain her every day throughout the seven-year famine. And notice forth the duration of the miracle now we've already said it's a seven-year famine but in the the drought in the days of the prophet elijah that lasted three and a half years which is half the length of what this famine would last again verse number one says then spake elijah unto the woman whose son he had restored to life saying arise and go thou and thine household and sojourn wheresoever thou canst sojourn for the lord hath called for a famine it shall also come upon the land seven years when men refuse to humble themselves before the almighty God and the hand of God, expect that God will lay his rod of judgment and correction upon them even heavier than what it was. And whatever successive plagues will come, they will be even more intense than what was originally sent. Every message from every prophet sent by, uh, sent by God to the nation of Israel was the same. Israel was to consider their ways. What are you doing? Because what you're doing is wrong and needs to be corrected. Were they walking in obedience to God or were they living in open defiance and disobedience? God repeatedly warned Israel of neglecting him and selfishly looking only to themselves. And despite how often God called on the nation of Israel to repent and to turn to him, they refused his instructions and continued to do according to their own wicked hearts. And that is why we read by the prophet Haggai. He says in chapter 1 and verse number 10 and 11, it says, Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, 
and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. God had sent the prophet Elisha to the Samaritans. He had sent him to King Jehoram. And despite all of his efforts, despite how clearly God had demonstrated his power and his authority by one miracle after the next, the king and the people continued in their rebellion against God, never giving him thanks, never showing him appreciation. And as a result, God would punish the nation for seven years. And notice fifth, the beneficiary of the miracle. The beneficiary of the miracle. Again, look at verse number one. It says, Then spake Elisha unto the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise, and go thou and thine household, and sojourn wheresoever thou canst sojourn. For the Lord hath called for a famine, and it shall also come upon the land seven years. Again, this is the same Shunammite woman that we met back in chapter four, who not only provided food for the prophet Elisha, but a chamber in her house was built for him to stay in whenever he needed. We saw her remarkable faith. We pointed this out back when we were in chapter four. There was such an incredible faith that she had in God before any of this encounter that she had with the prophet Elisha, who was again passing by her home on a regular basis. She knew that he was a man of God. She wanted to do something to be a blessing to the man of God and offering food wasn't enough but providing him a place where he could stay and sleep and study and, and do everything he needed to do felt more better. And as she was faithful to God in doing all this, her faith continued to grow exponentially even after the death of her son. Because we read after her son died that she didn't just go and bury him, but she promptly went to meet the prophet Elisha fully expecting that God would restore her dead son to life. And as a result of her faith, she was not disappointed as God worked a miracle and restored her dead son to life. But now we fast forward as we're here in 2 Kings chapter 8, where several years have passed. And now God is using the prophet Elisha to warn this same woman of severe judgment that is coming. And he tells her how she can escape it, how she can avoid the famine that is coming. There are several lessons I think we can learn from this. First, we're not to selfishly keep the message of the gospel to ourselves. As ministers of God, we are to let the gospel light shine brightly through us so that all may hear the blessed news of salvation in Jesus Christ. You see, Elisha was given the message. We don't know how, but God spoke to him and let him know that the land is going to suffer a famine for seven years. Seven years. He could have kept it to himself. He could have never told a soul about it. And it probably would have been fine because everyone deserved what was coming. But instead, he goes and he tells the Shunammite woman, a woman that has shown him kindness, a woman that has shown him favor, a woman that was a, a faithful follower and believer of God, he finds her and he shows her how she can avoid the punishment because the news that he receives is something that he cannot keep to himself. How are we when it comes to sharing the gospel? How are we when it comes to telling others about the joy and the love that we have because of what Jesus has done for us in our lives? Is the news too great for us to keep to ourselves or are we perfectly content keeping it bottled up never telling another soul about it? There's a lesson that we can learn in here and that is to not be selfish as far as keeping the gospel to ourselves but rather to share it with those that God has placed in our lives. It is a message that is, great, that is greater than anything that we're ever gonna hear, greater than any news that can ever be proclaimed and news that the world is looking for. Many instances we come across where we, we meet individuals who are looking for that message. Someone has shared the gospel with them before. The seed has been planted. The seed has been watered as someone else has come and ministered to them as well. And then God maybe uses us to be the one that reaps as we share the gospel one last time and that person finally trusts in Jesus as their Savior. Maybe you're a seed planter. Maybe God has used you to spread the gospel seed, to sow the seed in the lives of the people that he has placed in your, in your life. Maybe you are one that's watering seeds. Wherever we find ourselves in that course, planting, watering, reaping, God is using every single individual for a purpose, for ultimately that his word would produce 
eternal life as the person hears it and believes in it. But either way, we know that the word of God will never return void, but he expects us to be the instruments by which that word goes forth. Share the gospel. May it be something that you cannot help but tell others about. Do not selfishly keep the gospel to yourself. Second, we should not forget about those who have showed us kindness in the past. Don't forget about those who have shown kindness to you in the past. This is what he's doing here. This woman had shown kindness to the prophet Elisha in the past, not only by providing him food, but now building an addition onto her home where he can come and stay and live instead of making the journey all the way every single day. Believers should be seeking opportunities to help those around us in whatever way we can, especially to those who have shown us kindness. Now, this can be done in many different ways. It can be done by praying for the needs of one another. It can be done by sending someone an encouraging note, by dropping food off for them. Really, in any number of ways, you can show kindness to people that God has placed around you. The point is that Elisha didn't think he had already done enough for this woman. You know, he could have calculated everything, and when he heard the message that God is going to send a famine on the land for seven years, he could have said, you know what, I've done quite a bit for this woman. I mean, after all, I did raise her son back to life. I mean, come on. In comparison to what she did for me, I'd say that the scales are very much tipped in my favor as far as how much grace and kindness I have shown to her as opposed to what she's shown to me, not discounting what she's done. But how can you measure giving life back to her son in comparison to feeding and providing shelter? One clearly outweighs the other. He could have sat and methodically processed this all out and said, you know what? She... She's been greatly favored. If I keep this to myself, what's the big deal? He doesn't say that at all. He hears about the famine, and immediately he goes and he tells the woman, you need to get out of here. Go where you can, you and your entire household. Seek shelter because God is sending a famine for seven years. He wasn't keeping a record. He wasn't thinking, well, you know, since I helped her out last time, it's her turn to help me out before I do anything else for her. Don't forget about the kindness that has been shown to you in the past. And third, God honors those who honor him. God honors those who honor him. In the past, the woman had ministered to the temporal needs of the prophet. And now she was receiving blessing from him as he was instructing her what to do to avoid the effects of the famine. Again, verse number one says, Then spake Elisha unto the woman, whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise, and go thou and thine household, and sojourn wheresoever thou canst sojourn. For the Lord hath called for a famine, and it shall also come upon the land seven years. He's telling her what to do. He's telling her how she can avoid this incredible hardship. Now, this was no easy thing to do for the woman. This woman is basically told, Leave your home, Go into a foreign land, live there for seven years. Okay, just like that? You expect me to just leave everything and go and just plant down my roots and stay there for seven years? There's no mention of her husband here, which many scholars believe that he's probably passed on by this point, which would have made it even more difficult for this woman to, to pick up and leave. But notice what we read in verse number two. So verse number one, he says, listen, this is what you need to do. You need to get out. God is sending a famine. It's going to be for seven years. Verse two says, and the woman arose and did after the saying of the man of God, and she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. She doesn't hesitate. She does exactly what the prophet tells her to do, and she does it right away. What a great reminder this is that this world is not our home and we shouldn't hold on tightly to the things that we have right now. She just drops everything, takes whatever she can and goes. We're also reminded that the righteous are faced with many inconvenient situations because of the actions of the wicked, which is what this woman found herself in. It wasn't her fault that this is happening. She was among the few that were actually thankful to God for all the things that he was doing. She was faithful to him when it was unpopular to be faithful to God. And that's why Elisha seeks her out and says, you need to get out. 
If she was guilty, he probably would have just stayed silent and said, you know what, she's got it coming. But she had been faithful to God, and that's why he tells her she needs to leave and go find refuge somewhere else where she's not going to be affected by this. And she gets up and immediately goes, and she's forced to do this because of the wickedness of the people around her. Nevertheless, the Lord takes special care of his own when his judgments fall upon the wicked that are surrounding them. But even still, this woman's faith was being tested immensely. She's just told to get up and go. And again, she obeys right away. Put yourself in her shoes. How many of you would be able to do the same as what she did and as quickly as what she did? How many of us would be able to trust God enough to provide without a clear plan of what we're to expect and how we're to expect it? He doesn't tell her, listen, you need to go to the land of the Philistines. There's going to be someone with a room in his home to, you know, to lend to you. You can stay there. Provisions are going to be taken care of. Give them my name when you get there. He'll be expecting you. All of this is going to be taken care of for the next seven years. Don't worry about a thing. He doesn't tell her that. He doesn't even tell her where to go. He says, listen, verse number one, Arise, go, thou and thine household sojourn, wheresoever thou canst sojourn, wherever you can go, just go. He leaves it up to her to try and figure out, which is an immense test of her faith. She's got to just walk out like, okay, um, how about this direction? We'll go here. She has no, in the land of the Philistines, those are the enemies. And she's supposed to go. And she's going with the mindset that God, through the prophet Elisha, is telling her to go in order to sustain her and protect her. And she goes into the heart of the enemies. How crazy is this? How strong is this woman's faith? To not only trust that God can provide in the midst of this widespread famine, but that God could also provide when she's going into the land of the enemies. It's like she's putting God's faithfulness to her to the test as well. God, I'm trusting that you can do this. I'm trusting that you're going to take care of me. I want to see just how awesome you are. Almost like she's not going to make it easy on God. Let, let's, go, let's go to the, 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 uh, right into the mouth of the lion. And let's see how good you are. And boy, she would not be disappointed. Because the God that she is faithfully serving and worshiping is the God who always takes care of his own. She doesn't hesitate. She does exactly what the prophet tells her to do. And what a great reminder of what our devotion and focus should be on. Not the things of this world, but on God. No matter where we go, no matter where he calls, we're to do as he says and trust that he can take care of us every step of the way. But again, if you put yourself in her shoes, it's, I don't know that I could do this. I'm praying and saying, God, okay, which way? How is this going to happen? What's it going to look like? What should I expect? You know, at least with Elijah, the prophet, he sends her to Zarephath. He says, listen, there's a widow woman you're going to meet there. She's going to sustain you. Okay. Nothing, nothing for this woman. And that's not to say that God doesn't love or care about this woman, but her faith was so strong she didn't need to know the how or the why or everything else all she needed to know was get out you don't want to be here and she does we see such a steadfast faith in God in this woman a perfect example of one who is being kept in God's perfect peace because why where was her mind stayed on God she was trusting in him she arose, it says, and did after the saying of the man of God. She looked beyond the prophet to the master. She did after the saying of the man of God. Not the saying of the man, but the saying of the man of God. There is no hint that she hesitated or even questioned God because by this point she knew God to be everything she would ever need him to be. And she trusted that he was capable to do whatever needed to be done. So she goes and she settles down in the land of the Philistines, finds out 
that believers often receive kinder treatment from strangers than from those who profess to be the people of God. Because remember, it was her own people that led to this problem of the famine in her homeland in the first place. And she has to go to an enemy place. The Philistines had long been the enemies of Israel, recently had made war against them. And this is where this woman goes. And while she's there, she's allowed to live peaceably in their midst, having all of her temporal needs provided by them. It's amazing how the power of God can be seen working in some of the most unlikeliest ways. The truth is that the Lord never surprises those who truly trust in him. He just continues to prove himself trustworthy and they come to expect it from him. And notice what we read in verse number three. Verse three says, and it came to pass at the seven years end that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines and she went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. I love this. As well as she was sustained in the land of the Philistines, which we're given every idea that she is, she's taken care of. She was ready to go back home at the end of the seven years. And notice that the Bible says she returned at the end of the seven years, not at the end of the famine. Again, it says, it came to pass at the seven years end that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines. She doesn't look around and say, okay, oh yeah, crops are starting to grow again, rain has fallen again. Okay, we're good. She's keeping a clock. Elisha said seven years. She's got it marked on the calendar. Seven years from this day, I'm packing up and going home. I don't care what's happening around me. He said seven years. So seven years it shall be. She's not looking at current events. She's not checking weather forecasts. She's not checking how the farmers are doing with their crops. She is looking at the clock that God had started when he told the prophet Elisha, you need to go and you need to go now. How awesome is that? How contrary is that to what we do? We look around at all the signs. God, are you at work? Because I'm not seeing everything going on the way it should be. Instead of just trusting that what God has said is actually going to come to fruition. She's counting down the days, not waiting for current events to tell her what the time is. She had such a confidence in God that she was able to count down the days because God had told her a specific number, seven years. The Bible isn't clear whether her property had been seized by the king when she comes back or if it had been taken over by someone else. Either way, she comes back after the seven years, and was trying to claim what was rightfully hers. And notice, sixth, the sequel of the miracle. Look at verses four through six now. It says, And the king talked with Gehazi. There's another man that we haven't seen in a while. Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, I pray thee, all the great things that Elisha hath done. And it came to pass, as he was telling the king how he had restored a dead body to life, that, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life cried to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed unto her a certain officer, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the fruits of the field since the day that she left the land, even until now. Now we see Gehazi again, and when we last seen him, he was stricken with the incurable disease of leprosy that Naaman had been healed from. Now some people believe that God had graciously healed him. I believe that the king rather had this insatiable curiosity to try and find out everything there was to know about this prophet Elisha that he called in the man who had been serving with him for so many years, Gehazi, despite the fact that he's a leper. I don't believe that God has cured him. I just believe that he's keeping his distance and he's trying to figure out as much as he can about the prophet Elisha. What's really neat about this is the timing of everything because Gehazi happens to be telling the king everything that Elisha had done specifically as he's telling the story about how Elisha had miraculously healed the Shunammite woman's son by raising him who was dead to life. The woman happens to be walking in right as he's saying that. And as he's getting the words out of his mouth, he says, look, there she is. That's the woman! And that's the boy! As if by coincidence, all these things happened. Amazingly enough, the Lord moves the king to grant this woman her request and restore her land to her, which is not something that we see the king do 
good for others, but he does. And notice seventh, last, the lesson of the miracle. So very quickly, I started off one way and I want to end the same way. There are many details that we've drawn our attention to this morning, but the one I want to leave you with is the point that I first started out with, the loving kindness of the Lord. Again, Psalm 107, verse 43. If you haven't taken note of this, take note of it. Underline it, highlight it, mark it in your Bibles. Read, when you go home, read through Psalm 107 for yourself. But again, Psalm 107, verse 43, to cap off this entire wonderful psalm, he says, Whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. God works in many different ways in all of our lives, in many different ways using many different people, even those who are living lives in opposition to him, God will use them. At times, God chooses to make gracious provisions, even for the wicked, which we saw in chapter 7 of 2 Kings. But the day will soon come where the wicked shall reap what they have sown, as we see here in chapter 8 with the seven-year famine. The more we are apt to pay attention to the wonderful works of God in our lives, the better we shall understand God's loving kindness. And the more we shall live our lives in confidence, expecting him to deliver when our backs are up against the wall. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, we're thankful today, Lord. We're thankful for the awesome examples that we have in Scripture. Lord, this Shunammite woman, she just never ceases to amaze us. Lord, back in chapter 4, when we were first introduced to her, we were just blown away at the incredible faith that she had in you. And Lord, once again, what an incredible faith is demonstrated. Lord, as your servant Elijah tells her just to leave, pick up and leave everything that she has known to be her home, and she does without hesitation. And she trusts, not knowing where she's going to go and how it's going to fare, but Lord, she trusts that you are going to sustain her and protect her the entire time. And not only did you do that, but Lord, as she returned at the seven years' end, you restored everything that was uh, hers and even with interest what she missed out on for those seven years. What a blessing it is, Lord, to see your faithfulness to those who are faithful to you. Lord, I pray that those words from Psalm 107, verse 43 would be forever etched in our minds as we consider just the wonderful working that you are doing in our lives. Lord, whoso is wise and shall observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. May that be us. May we understand, Lord, may we be observing all of these things and see just how wonderful your loving kindness is to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.